The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Streaming time, Elaine Burke and Joe share with us. And Elaine, tell us a little bit about what kneecap the Belfast rap trio wore on the Late Late Show last Friday night. Yes, so Kneecap is made up of Mokara, Mowgli Bap and DJ Provi and they performed before their interview uh, with Patrick Hilty on the show and during the performance uh, you could see that they were wearing uh, Palestinian badges and then during the interview DJ Provi took off uh, a jacket that he was wearing and then he was wearing a Palestinian uh, football jersey, jersey I think it was yeah, yeah. and it was a jersey um, and uh, they didn't explicitly say what was being worn but Patrick Hilty very quickly obviously cottoned on uh, to the gesture being made and addressed it immediately and said, okay, I'm obliged now to say that um, this is controversial, some people may not agree with what you've just done, kind of without actually saying that what he's done is worn a Palestinian jersey on RTE. Um, And then the guys actually made a statement basically saying that they're just, you know, using the platform that they were given by being on the Late Late Show to call out the 30,000 people that have been killed in Gaza and to... 30,000. Yeah. Yeah, 30,000 at least and so many others injured a multiple of that and so many people who have been displaced from their homes who've been chased through Gaza and I say that and before some texts start complaining, while also taking into account the fact that there was a dreadful outrage committed by the terrorists of Hamas on October 7th, which has provoked this Israeli response, but which many people believe all over the world has been disproportionate in its response. But Joe Shea, this wasn't the first time in recent weeks that we've had an incident like this where people going on the Late Late Show have been told what not to wear. Because what happened the week before, Joe? Yeah, well, Women in Harmony, the Irish vocal group, were doing a tribute to Sinead O'Connor and they were also intending to wear badges uh, showing solidarity with the people of Gaza and they were told not to and they actually complied with that. Whereas Kneecap said, uh, it looks like Kneecap said, sure, yeah, no problem, we won't do it. And then they just went ahead and did it anyway. Which kind of got RT, you know, RT were able to say then, well, we told them not to, they agreed not to and then, you know, it's not our fault they did. But, you know, more than a few people have pointed out, and it may be apples and oranges, but for instance, when Brian Tuberty hosted a big solidarity, an entire show for Ukraine um, a year and a half ago now, near, nearly that, he, Brian Tuberty was standing in, fa- in front of a giant uh, yellow and, uh, and blue flag for much of that show, and there was... You know, multiple symbols about the, uh, about Ukraine, which you could argue is also you know was a political cause. So you know, th- th- of course, what ha- what has happened in Ukraine with an uh, unprovoked invasion is is very different to what's happened in Gaza. You would make the argument, but still, it's not as if they've they've never had political symbols on the show. But there seems to be a particular problem with with uh, ones for the Palestinian people. But what should they do? Well, it's it's very difficult. I mean, you know. <laughs> They can just say, I mean, they, they obviously had say, feel that they have to stick to these fairness uh, and both sides and balance and all that kind of stuff. But they can just, I, I mean, Patrick Keelty could just say what he went ahead and said anyway, and I'm sure he'd probably agree with this as well, is just to say we have guests on tonight who have, like many people, strong opinions on what's happening in, in the Middle East at the moment. We are not in any way endorsing, you know, their message, but in the interest of free speech and artistic expression, they're entitled to say what they want to say. What do you think, Elaine, should happen in these circumstances? Yeah, well, I think, uh, like, RT has played it 
correctly by the standards that they set for themselves. They've got this uh, journalism and content guidelines that they issued to uh, NECAP ahead of their appearance because they were aware that they intended to wear these symbols and were told and assured by NECAP and their management that they weren't going to wear them. And then NECAP being a provocative act by their nature just went against that and it's the nature of live uh, television as Orsi said in their own statement that I mean anything could happen someone could rush the stage of Orsi wearing these uh, symbols and stuff like that if it's live television this can't happen and you know they have to then present the balanced view which is what Patrick Keelty was obliged to do And let's move it on then because you're our Eurovision fanatic here on this programme what do you make of what's happening with the forthcoming Eurovision with Israel has entered a song which is absolutely political in its lyrics. This is very interesting and I know the long history of Eurovision and its political songs. Uh, So October Rain is the entry for Israel this year by Eden Golan and uh, even from the title you can probably get the suggestion is that it's going to be in reference to the October 7th attack. And the lyrics aren't explicit in any way. I've read the lyrics through um, and I, I, you wouldn't see, like, there's no actual mention of even October 7th. The song's just called October Rain and it's quite melancholic. It's being reviewed by the European Broadcasting Union, which is the uh, organisation that hosts Eurovision, to see if they're going to deem it too political to go forward on the stage. This has happened before. There was a song by Georgia in 2009 called We Don't Want to Put In which was like a direct reference to We Don't Want Putin, um, very, very thinly veiled. That was um, pulled out of the competition. Um, But other songs that are political have gotten through before, whether they're thinly veiled or very well disguised is arguable. Like uh, the Croatian entry last year, Mama Sh, uh, people might remember them as like a military drag act. Very visually compelling, but the song was hugely political and actually... uh, entice some complaints from some other uh, nations that were involved in the event. The idea of Mama bought a tractor, which was a refrain recited throughout the song, um, was actually about Mother Russia buying Belarus. Uh, was, and that was a punk act that's known for their political provocatism, quite like kneecap. Uh, so it's not a surprise that they went that political route. And that went ahead last year. Jamala won for the Ukrainian entry in 2016. It was a song called 1944 about the enforced deportation of Crimean Tatars and was you know, seems to be a reference to the 2014 illegal annexation of Crimea uh, by Russia and that went on to win and it wasn't banned from the competition. So European Broadcasting using High has a very big issue with balancing out what's art and performance and interpretable as political and what is directly political and that's the line that they're trying to draw now and Israel, if they are challenged on this song, are going to pull out. What do you think of this, Joe? This is interesting. <clears throat> the, the, the European, the, the, the EBU was trying to, was almost bending over backwards to, to kind of keep Israel in, to avoid controversy and to say, we're not about politics. These, we're, we, this is not nation states. This is, you know, this is the, the culture of, of the countries involved. It's almost as if Israel is daring the, the, the Eurovision organizers to ban them now because they knew exactly what they were doing with this song. And it's almost as if they're going to say, all right, okay, ban us, you know. We're allowed to talk about this. The world won't let us talk about October 7th. The world is going on about what's happening to the Palestinians. If you ban us, so if you want... And and it's like they're almost daring it now. So it's going to be fascinating to see what happens because the Eurovision, the organisers, I'm sure, this is the absolute last thing they want. It's happening in Malmo this year, which, by the way, has a very, very large um, immigrant uh, uh, Muslim population in Malmo, in in Sweden. So it's, it's, it's... 
a major headache for everybody involved. And even if Eden Golan's song gets through, this is probably going to see protests from the audiences are already Eurovision fans who are protesting Israel's involvement. Yep. They've protested it long before uh, the events of the past year. Um, and I've always seen protests at any Eurovision event that I've ever seen and leaflets being handed out that are pro-Palestinian. So this is going to court controversy whichever way it lands. Okay, let's move away from that and let's remember one of the great soap actors, he's been off Coronation Street many years, his character was killed off I think back as far as 2010 but John Savident died uh, in the last few days at the age of 86 but his character Fred Elliott was much loved. Let's hear his last scene from Coronation Street on the day of his wedding to Bev where he visited the love of his life Audrey Roberts. I'll not be seeing much of you in the future. I'll be turning me back on not just you, but other folk as well. My old life, if you like. Starting afresh. And if, God forbid, if I should never see you again, I'll never forget you. I will certainly never forget you. Go on. Be happy. I said be happy. Fred? What are you doing? He was one of the big characters, wasn't he, Joe, of Coronation Street? Perhaps one of those that they've never really replaced since. Yeah, I think, actually, what's interesting about him, John Savant, was I think he was kind of the last, or one of the last of the, from the golden age of Coronation Street, when it still had, was very much a, you know, a must-see TV mass audience. I mean, it still has, obviously, a very big audience. But it, it, when, when he started going, it was around the same time that a lot of the older characters were bowing out. Uh, and it, it's it, it's kind of sad, because it does, it reminds me of when I used to watch it back in the day, and, and I kind of stopped even before he left, but he was very much old school Carnation Street but he had an amazing career outside of that and and you know that's what's interesting to me that when when these people that you only know for one kind of character when they die you find out that he was in, he was in Yes Minister and he was in A Clockwork Orange the Stanley Stanley Kubrick movie he was in Gandhi the Battle of Britain and Doctor Who so a great career and on stage as well in musicals okay but i think you know he was i think known for his catchphrase i say i say and much more ebullient than perhaps that clip that we have here and the reason i bring that up Elaine is is because uh, it's now been suggested that TV subs could be made by artificial intelligence within three years, as in scripted and actually filmed by artificial intelligence. But would AI come up with a character like Fred Elliott? Well, see, this is the thing. Like, they call it generative AI, but I would call it derivative AI. So they would come up with a character like Fred Elliott, but they wouldn't come up with anything new. Um, so they wouldn't be the forerunners of a character like Fred Elliott. So it, you would get something that's already gone before, which a lot of, you know, soaps, uh, storylines do tend to try and rehash things. You get a lot of jilted lovers and love triangles and um, controversial death scenes and stuff like that. Uh, so I think that's why they use soaps as an example. And this was a, a statement from James Hawes, who's actually uh, the director of Slow Horses, um, to the UK's Culture, Media and Sport Committee inquiry into British film and high-end television. So he was basically making a statement uh, as vice chair of Directors UK um, 
saying that this is a possibility, that the industry needs to be aware of this kind of threat of AI to um, both its artistry and to jobs and things like that. And he used the example of Doctors, which is a soap that was recently cancelled by BBC. And he basically polled a bunch of industry experts. And the summation was that in about three and a half years, you could expect to see something like that could be made, as you said, uh, written, directed by AI. And, of course, the consequences of the financial crisis at RT, are they been seen when it comes to one of their hit shows of recent years, the drama Kin, Joe? This is interesting because this it's a bit confusing. There was We were told that there was a third series of Kin had already been partially or mostly filmed and it was just at the kind of, you know, the post-production stage. We were also told that Kin was going to, it was a fourth season was already commissioned because one of the reasons why is because it's been a big hit for RT and for BBC and it's had one an international audience and international sales. Now, today The Sun is reporting that one of the characters, one of the actors uh, from, the, from, the, uh, from the show uh, who plays the boss in the pawn shop where the money is, is, is laundered, he has said to them that as far as he knows that there will not even be a third uh, uh, series because partly because, uh, as we know, the, um, the studios, Bronze Studios, the production company behind it, actually went into file for bankruptcy last year. So this is actually not RT's fault? It doesn't seem to be. No, I'm st- I, would be, I would question this, right? Because I'm, if, it's, if RT and BBC have done much of the filming of season three already... And it is a big hit. There seems to be no reason why they couldn't get together and work out some sort of way to pay for the post-production and get it on the air. Like, channels do not leave, you know, very popular shows just lying there in the dust if it's possible at all to save it. So I'd say watch this space. I don't think we've seen The Last of Kin. Would it not be something like the way the Top Boy was picked up maybe by uh, Netflix that this could be done? Exactly. I mean, they'll just they'll get somebody else to finance because, like I said, it's won an international audience, and and that's a big thing these days. But you know? and so, presumably, then the actors will be persuaded yeah, to come back persu- if, if they yeah. haven't signed it, on to do other things. On, yeah, because part of the story is that the actors are out of contract. But again, that would be relatively normal as well. If if the production company goes in, for, in bankruptcy, actors go off and do other things. It's not a big problem to get them back and to finish what what they started. Picks of the week, Elaine. What are you going for? Uh, I know this is one that Joe is actually a big fan of as well. Yeah. He's, he has seen the original, uh, but it's the reboot of Shogun, which is on Disney Plus from tomorrow. Two episodes available tomorrow, and then there'll be weekly uh, installments up to 10 episodes. It's set in this feudal Japan era of 1600. It follows the story of the first English person to set foot in Japan, and he actually becomes kind of um, ingratiated with the culture, becoming a samurai and shogun himself. And it's like historical, it looks cinematic and moody and atmospheric the reviews are coming out they're glowing for it and it just looks like a really good hit that could be one of the strongest starts of the year because Joe this was done before wasn't it yeah I remember the RT and I was way too young to be watching it but in the early 80s Richard Chamberlain and Toshiro Toshiro Mifuni the legendary Japanese actor in the original version of the James Clavell story novel from 1975 it was amazing back then and it made such a huge impression on me as a a nine year old watching people get their head cut off (laughs) Samurai swords, but right. uh, I, I would definitely watch it. You know, I, I, I think this okay. looks fantastic. But tell us about your pick, which is on Channel Four yeah. over the next four nights. I'd say this is going to be massive. This is 
is the jury murder trial. It's starting tonight, 9pm on Channel 4. The Guardian, who saw an advanced copy of it, the reviewer said, this legal experiment might, might be the most terrifying TV series ever, right? Now, here's what it is. They have taken a real-life murder trial from England. They've changed some of the details. They've changed the names and the locations and the times. But it is a real-life murder trial. And they are restaging it with actors playing the, 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 the defendants, the witnesses, the police, the judge, uh, but also with very strict guidelines with um, advisors, legal advisors, experts telling them. They have two real-life juries. That's the twist. Neither jury knows there's another jury. So there's two trials running parallel. And what they want to do is, they're, they're, it's, there's been studies on, they reckon that maybe up to a quarter of jury trials do not get the right result. Often due to bias, to preconceived notions, to anything to do from the race of the defendant to what people in the jury have experienced themselves. So they're going to run a full murder trial and the, the trial's about a man who murdered his wife. And they're going to see, they're going to go inside the jury room and look at people and, and it's under real conditions and ask them, you know, to see how they decide what they decide. I think it's going to be fascinating TV. It's called The Jury Murder Trial over four nights, Channel 4, starting tonight, 9pm. Joe and Elaine Burke, thank you both. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.